Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, we often hear complaints about there not being enough love in the afternoon, but this is the week for those fans who are looking for some romance. So on General Hospital, Chase and Brooklyn will make love at long last which will be welcome to viewers, I'm sure. On Days of Our Lives, Eric and Nicole, who are both involved with others, she is married, uh, will find the sparks are still there when he has to shoot her for a modeling assignment, which is a callback to their 1998 tale where they first fell in love. And on Young and the Restless, Devon and Abby, who up until now have been good friends, will grow decidedly closer. Now, also on days less romantic, of course, Kristen will move in with Brady into John and Marlena's home, no less. And on YNR, Nick and Victoria will clash over Sally. But that's what's happening on screen. Um, there's also some big casting news from General Hospital, and you have the scoop. Yes, and it is news that I am thrilled about. William R. Moses, who has two primetime soap roles on his list of credits, Cole on Falconcrest and Keith on Melrose Place, and is also known for his work in Mystic Pizza and in the Perry Mason Mysteries, is coming aboard as Dr. Jeff Weber, Elizabeth's absentee father. That role was played from 1976 to 1981 by Richard Dean Anderson, who is now retired from acting. Uh, but Liz fans have been asking for Jeff's return for many, many years, and the time has finally come. And we won't just be seeing Jeff. We'll also be seeing his wife, Carolyn, Liz's mother, who will be played by Denise Crosby, uh, who's probably best known for her work on Star Trek The Next Generation. So obviously the story that we're seeing uh, unfold on screen, where Liz is having these murky memories of something involving Jeff and uh, apparently Finn's late wife, Rako, and a flight of stairs, uh, that's been crying out for an appearance by Jeff and Carolyn. And I just cannot wait to see uh, Rebecca Herbst, who plays Liz, on screen with William and Denise. And what's especially cool, I think, is that William told me that he was watching General Hospital when he was in high school for a bit of the time that Richard Dean Anderson was on the show as Jeff because his brother, Rick Moses, actually played the role of Hutch, the hitman in the left-handed boy, Luke and Laura on the run story that brought them to Beecher's Corners. And he has actually known Jeannie Francis, who plays Laura for many years because they had the same agent at the start of their career. And then and fans also saw two on-screen returns uh, take place on air this week, one being Jeff Kober as Cyrus and the other being Emma Sams as Holly. And we have interviews with both of them in the new issue as well. Well, there is lots going on in Port Charles, and it will not surprise you to hear that I was a big Falcon Crest fan. And uh, I did know that fun little tidbit um, about the Moses brothers, but I feel like it was from when I was not working at the magazine and was just reading it. Now, in the new issue, we also have an interview with Kyle Lauder, who's been popping in and out of days as Rex. So Kyle has actually pivoted into a new career, which is real estate, but that doesn't mean his enthusiasm for acting has diminished at all. He says he's fortunate in his ability to do both and appreciates any time Rex is written in. You know, I feel his presence has really helped to ground this fantastical tale with the orchid, which is another great callback to a story from 1997, 
But Rex is Kate's son, and he's a doctor. It would have been strange if he wasn't part of this tale. Um, and, you know, the writers also had Sammy and Lucas call in to Marlena and Kate, respectively, which is another good nod to reality, I feel. But the story that surprised me this week, and yes, even after all these years, I can still get surprised by something that plays out on camera, was the Hope and Thomas kiss on Bold and Beautiful. I mean, I was not expecting to see that. And I tip my hat to the show's executive producer and head writer, Bradley Bell, who really manages to throw some curveballs our way. I mean, the one thing I know to expect on The Bold and the Beautiful is that no relationship on that show is ever really over. You know, I feel like uh, Hope and Liam were due for a shakeup and Thomas has proven his worth as a good spoiler in that dynamic before. So I am definitely interested to see what the plan is on that front, uh, especially since the last time we saw Thomas get any real action. It was, you know, with a mannequin version of Hope. Yes, Thomas definitely needs some loving. And our guest today is the man playing Thomas. It's Matthew Atkinson. So let's get him on the line and see what he thinks of his current tale. Hi, Matthew. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? We are good. Well, thank you so much for doing this today. I know you are off this week. So I am. Yeah. So Exciting. we appreciate it even more. Hmm. Um, Anytime. No, you, you guys are great. And it's, it's been way too long since we've talked. So it has indeed. And, you know, the first time we had you on the podcast, we kind of jumped right into your acting career and we mm -hmm. missed deep diving into the earliest part of your life. So you were born in Georgia and moved around a lot as a kid and sports was really your focus. So tell us how you got into acting in the first place. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. So I don't even know if sports was my focus. I didn't really, I, my attention was everywhere when I was a kid. Um, but I was always outdoors. Um, and you know, I was a scout and I eventually became an Eagle scout. And, um, but it was sort of, it, it, it was sort of, <laughs> it wasn't intentional necessarily. I, I, I was, um, going around the high school looking for electives, um, like which electives I was going to choose with my dad. And, and we happened to go across the drama room and the drama teacher stopped us and sort of had a whole spiel. And, and at the end of it, it was like an hour, it felt like an hour where she was like, Oh, all this stuff. And she was very excited about theater, but I was like, I don't, I don't really care. Um, I was, I was so enthralled with skateboarding at the time. I was like skateboarding and camping. That's all I really want to do. So theater is a little, okay. But she was like, you should really try it out because we have so many girls who want to do it, but no guys. And I was like, love those odds. So, um, I got, I, I, I just signed up for it there. And, um, and then it became, I, I, I was always kind of the kid who, who I was a little goofy and weird. I was never like the good looking, like popular guy. And, um, but, but I love making people laugh, especially girls, like, cause it's just that, that attention was, you know, I was like, Oh my God, I can make her laugh. Um, so I was the guy who would like run into walls just to make a girl laugh. And when I got up on stage and did a comedy and I got the whole theater to laugh, it was like, it was like a drug. Um, and from there it became like exploring these characters and all this stuff. And I think because my attention was all over the place when I was a kid, um, I saw the, like acting eventually as an avenue of, oh, I can do all the things that I wanted to do, but I just have to do it as a character instead of like doing it for real as a, you know, full on career. So, um, I think that's what, that's what got me really into it and focused on it. Um, and then, you know, there's a part of it that's like, I was never the popular guy. So there's something about being like in TV or movies that makes you feel like you're popular and like fulfills your ego, I think. Um, and so that was something that, that drew me in, in the beginning, it is no longer something that drives me, but I do remember like being in school and being like, Oh, I kind of feel cool. Cause like, you know, like I might be on TV, you know, that sort of thing. That is cool. You were cool. <laughs> I wasn't cool then, but maybe I'm cool now. <laughs> we'll give you it now. We didn't Thank know you. that. So you were sort of goofy and all over the place as you've just described it. So what did your parents think when you started to pursue acting, which maybe doesn't seem like the most logical thing to follow from how you've described yourself? You know, I think I, I, my parents were really good about this, that they didn't, they never tried to force me into what they wanted. Um, they were very open to allowing my sort of passions to manifest um, and to see where they, where they led. But that doesn't mean that they didn't, you know, come in with, with their words of wisdom from time to time. They were, 
because um, it wasn't like while I was in high school, it was after that when I started pursuing acting like full time and trying to get an agent and all that stuff. And, and they were after about a, you know, so I was taking classes, but I wasn't like pursuing college really. They were, and, and specifically I was like, Hey, the first two years don't really matter in college. You know, you can go to a technical college, get all the same stuff and for, you know, less than half the money. It's like no cost, you know, to go to a small technical college and then transfer to a major university and get a degree there. So I was like, while I'm pursuing this acting thing, I'm just going to take some classes at a technical college. And then if I decide to pursue the college degree side of things, then um, I can just transfer into a, a better school at some point. And that was which got them off my back while I, while I pursued acting. And, um, and my fa- I think my favorite quote to them back then was there's no need for a plan B because it distracts from plan A. Um, <laughs> and, and which, which they were like, really, I think not, not so taken with that because they're like, <laughs> well, yeah, that that's true. And we understand you have a huge passion. We don't want to deter that, but you know, so I was sort of playing on their emotions there. Um, but eventually it sort of became, you know, they, they kept putting their two cents in, but they never tried to force their hand. And I'm really happy about that. Even when it came to me moving to the other side of the country, um, they recognized I'm an adult. I was always independent. I didn't want their money. I didn't want their help. I just wanted to pursue what I wanted to pursue. And so they just gave their, their, what their nuggets of wisdom along the way. And I think I'm really happy about that because, it didn't, it didn't make me feel like I was, I had a, an extra stress on the whole situation. I could truly pursue something with as much uh, vigor as I wanted to. Uh, and also, you know, when I booked a couple of things in the Atlanta market and, and I did a couple of TV shows, like little small roles and stuff, they were like, oh, like maybe, maybe he knows what he's doing. Like maybe he has the ability to make something out of this. So that every time that I got something or booked something, it was, it, it provided relief, I think, to them. Um, so yeah, I mean, honestly, they're, they're, they were, they were helpful from the beginning and they were always, um, supportive. And I really, really, really am grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Well, then how did you go about breaking into the business on a professional level? How anyone does Google, uh, (laughs) uh, Craigslist, um, I was, I was doing everything I could every agency that was in Atlanta. I was sending my headshot to, I was looking up, um, whether it was theater productions, uh, or low budget movies or anything that anyone posted online. I had no way in the gate. So I was just like, I'm going to go every route that I can. And, um, it sort of started with, I, I responded to a Craigslist ad for casting, I think it's Craigslist or something like that, um, for casting for a feature film that pays whatever. And um, it's no money. And it was a crappy, horrible, you know, low budget thing. And, uh, but I went and auditioned for it in the same hallway after I auditioned. He said, oh, I know this agent. And the agent is the one who gave him the space to do the auditions. And I, I met with that agent and I ended up getting repped by them, but they were terrible. It was, a, it was a terrible experience. I mean, it was just like, they were the third, like the third owned agency from a huge modeling agency. And then they were like going to have an acting department. They had no acting department. And so basically all they did for about six months was try and send me on like modeling auditions and, or whatever those go I think, I don't remember what they're called, but they, like you go and you basically stand there in front of someone, they look at you and then they say, okay, cool. And then they decide if they want your, you know, body to show off their clothes or whatever. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do none of nothing in me was like, even like for the money, I was like, I don't want to model. Like it's the last, it's the least interesting. I'd rather have no money. (laughs) Um, And, but that gave me, that did give me some um, experience driving all over town. And then I did meet some people through that. I met some actors that also modeled, et cetera. And I think eventually I just kept uh, hounding uh, uh, agencies enough in Atlanta that they would finally see me. And it was after I, I'd moved to uh, South Carolina and I was, I'd, I'd been cast to do a play there in Charleston. And um, it was after that, that I got an actual real good audition for an agency that was worth their salt in Atlanta. And, uh, and then, so I went, I ended up going back 
to Atlanta. I got rep by them and then auditioning and eventually getting a couple of, you know, one line here, two lines there sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So tell us about making the decision to move to LA and how it was for you to adjust to life across the country. I always loved exploring and I kind of got to the point in Atlanta where I knew there was, there was really nothing for me there any longer. Um, well, not that there was nothing for me, but that there was nothing where my, it, it, in the realm of where my focus was, that was for me there. And, um, you know how you go through stations in life and you sort of transition and sometimes some of your friends sort of, uh, peter out and you, you sort of, you know, so once you start setting boundaries and, and trying to, you know, sort of better yourself, um, you you realize that sometimes that pushes some people away, and and it's just you know it's just phases of your life. You you draw in the type of people that you are like typically, and um, I sort of most of my friends and you know any kind of relationship I had sort of just disappeared, and then there was this time where it was like I've done everything. I feel like I I've, I've kind of hit the ceiling as far as the Atlanta market is concerned. Anything past this is going to be doing the same thing over and over again, and uh, and I didn't feel this this need to stay because of relationships or whatever, and um, and I felt this pull to just leave, and so you know there's sort of two directions you can go: you can go theater in New York, or you can go L.A. for movies and TV. And um, I love cars and driving, and I loved camping and stuff, and so California made a whole lot of sense. So I came out to California and. It didn't, it, it wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't until like my first night sleeping in the crappiest apartment on the floor in a sleeping bag that I was like, maybe I made a bad decision. <laughs> but at that point, I'm already here. I can't stop now. So <clears throat> that's just sort of, um, that's sort of how it happened. I don't think it was actually a tough call at all, weirdly. Well, did you have an agent still when you got to Los Angeles or did you have to start all over again? No, mm-mm. I wish that would have been nice. Um, <laughs> no, I sort of hit the ground with nothing. Um, and again, it was back to the same <laughs> sending out, sending out headshots with resumes that I tried to buffer as much as I could with, uh, you know, tiny, like little theater plays, even high school plays. I like, I listed high school plays like that. They were, you know, big productions in Atlanta. Cause what the hell do they know? <laughs> and, uh, and I just, you know, I was just trying. Uh, I sent that out a hundred thousand times. I don't remember how many agencies I started with the top, you know, I went to CAA and William Morris cause I'm a dreamer. And I went to even, you know, the smallest badunkadunk agencies. I got a, a membership on IMDb so that I could search up all of their, you know, addresses and whatnot. And I just sent out headshots and that did not actually work. Um, what, Something, I don't even, this is sort of a, it's such a weird happenstance how I ended up with my agent and my manager. So the first was a call to my Atlanta agent by a manager asking if I ever came out to LA to audition for pilot season, which is very weird. And it kind of came out of nowhere after I was already in LA. So he's like, actually, he just moved out there. Um, I met with him and I met with two others um, and uh, managers, I believe. Wait, No. I met with uh, him and one other manager, and then I met with an agent that also, I believe, no, 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 that's how it happened. That's how I, I, that, no, I got it. So that's how I got one of the manager auditions. Another one came through a connection with my Atlanta agent. And then the third, this is actually how I got my agent manager. So th that was sort of picking up steam. That was like six months after I got there, nothing had happened. And then uh, I bought a refrigerator because when you when you move into an apartment in LA, I don't know if what it's like in New York, but in LA, for some weird reason, apartments don't come with fridges. Um, you have to bring your own fridge on like 90% of the apartments I looked at. So I got an apartment finally, but then I was like, because I was at a sublet for a bit and then I got an apartment and then I was like, I have an apartment, but no fridge. So I have nowhere to keep my food. So I started searching around for, and I found on Craigslist, a fridge and uh, it was right down the street for me and she was selling it for like 50 to 100 bucks. Got there, met with her, started talking to her. This weird coincidence thing happened. This is only God. It's not a coincidence. It can't be. Because it's like I got there, I started talking to her and she, I didn't know this at the time, but she was an actor who was repped by an agent and she was like, you should meet with my agent. 
And I was like, that's kind of weird that she's like, I think my agent's looking for someone in your category. I'm like, I don't know how you know that, but I'm game, whatever. I'll meet with whoever at this point. And uh, it turns out that the the agent was actually her boyfriend that she was moving in with. And uh, they had sat down and watched The Blind Side. And I had like two lines in The Blind Side, like nothing. But she remembered me from The Blind Side and she remembered her boyfriend, my, uh, her agent, saying hey that guy that guy's really good for a day player oh my god and, and just didn't like it passing during watching the movie cut to now we're having this conversation she remembers me from the movie she suggests me to her agent i go and meet with him we click off the bat we're very very similar guys and uh you know i was like he said he wanted to rep me i was like great and then he set me up with actually the the uh to meet with the manager that i am currently repped by so it's sort of like I don't know how the heck that happened. I bought a fridge and I somehow ended up with an agent. That's an amazing story. Meant to be. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I was right place, right time. God sent me. It was, I had no idea that I was being led, but I, I it happened. It's so weird how that happens, especially after like six months of nothing. Right. Just being rejected. <laughs> and then that happens and it, it totally worked out. That's amazing. So what was your last day job before you were able to support yourself as an actor? I was willing after I, when I got to LA, I was very fortunate. So I worked my butt off in Atlanta. I, I had like three jobs at once. I was working on cars. I was, I was, um, I was a personal trainer. I was a bartender and a server at a restaurant. I was doing everything I could to save up money so that I could move to LA and not have to do anything at least for like six months. I didn't realize how expensive LA was. I kind of knew, but, um, I basically ran out of money by the time I got my first job. And my first job is what a lot allowed me to not have a job for two more months. And then after those two months, I booked a pilot and that pilot ended up going to series for a season. And then from there, it was like, it, it just so happened that I moved to LA specifically going, I will go to my last dollar. I actually got a job as a bartender that I never had to actually do. So I got a job as a bartender and I ended up booking a pilot and I said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that I could devote all my attention to acting. And um, it just worked out. And I'm very fortunate. And, and most people don't have that experience. I was, I was expecting it to take at least five to 10 years. And that most of that time, I would probably have to bartend and whatnot. Um, but those were my main jobs was like working on cars, uh, bartending, serving, and personal training. And I had no other is those were quick ways to make money and uh, everyone needs a mechanic. Everyone needs, you know, a server, a bartender, everyone needs uh, personal training, at least in LA. Um, and so I knew that I could probably get a job somewhere and keep, keep, you know, feeding myself if I, if I needed to, but yeah, I actually never had to, as soon as I moved to LA, I basically worked my butt off for, for three and a half years, saving up as much as I could living in, you know, a, a dump type condition. Like I had no money to my name and I acted as if I had no money and I just put money into the bank account, moved to LA. It all ran out. I booked something. It all ran out. I booked something again and I was willing to let that all run out. <laughs> and it just, I don't know, man, it, <laughs> it worked for me. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, it speaks <clears throat> to your, you know, determination and perseverance there. Never mind. Those are actually just good life skills to have anyway. Well, that's true. Yeah. Um, now, when we had you on the podcast before, it was January of 2020, right before the daytime world and the actual world at large took an unexpected twist with the pandemic. Mm. Uh, so every soap had to figure out its own COVID protocols in order to get back into production, but being the infamously incorporated mannequins into shooting in order to cheat that the actors were in closer proximity to one another. Oh, uh, now, as fans know, mannequins eventually became a bigger part of your working life, uh, probably more than you ever imagined possible. Um, but before your mannequin story began, what was it like to suddenly have them on set and in your eyeline while you were working? Um, I mean, it was what it was, especially at the beginning, because it's, it's as long as we're working, you know, whatever we got to do. And, you know, they would throw whenever a man that whenever a person needed a, a character, another character in the scene needed to be close to you, they'd stick a mannequin for eyeline. Um, 
and I just kind of got used to that. And it was not, it, it wasn't the biggest deal in the world because it sucked because you couldn't really work out the scenes and play them. You had to sort of, you know, I mean, I, I can, I can talk to a wall and make it believable, but that doesn't make it any fun. You know, um, the fun in the scene comes from hearing the other people and, and experiencing them and, and, and having the scene come to life. So, um, it definitely took a toll on how fun the job was, but the fact that we were able to do it at all was totally worth it. So, yeah. Um, and then I guess, you know, we got, so we got, I think it was like E or someone did a story on us about how we were using mannequins for love scenes. And then they had like, you know, uh, Annika and, you know, Torsten and everyone, everyone, they had like photos of them with mannequins and they were like going in and acting like they're going to kiss a mannequin or whatever. And everyone thought that was ridiculous, but it was like, it's what the heck we had to do. You know, what else are we going to do? And I think Brad, because of that blow up in popularity and whatever decided, Hey, why don't we, you know, why don't we do a, um, uh, Lars and the real girl situation. And, uh, like Ryan got some good and just, have a mannequin be in the story. Why not? Right. And they were like, well, Thomas is the crazy one. So we might as well just make it, you know, him. Mm -hmm. So he did it. And um, <laughs> that was an interesting sort of time because, well, you know, it could have been one of those fun kooky things that was just ridiculous. Um, but at the time that just didn't feel right to me, especially with so many people um, suffering from all different kinds of um uh mental disorders uh you know the the pandemic and the and the lockdown especially drove the the rates of of that depression and and all, all different kinds of of uh mental issues um uh, through the roof as well as you know addiction and things like that and so it didn't feel like a time to um to necessarily play around with that um, so I don't know if it was necessarily the intention to make it s as serious as it became, but I felt like that if I was going, if I was going to act like a paranoid schizophrenic, I needed to act like a paranoid schizophrenic. And I wanted the people who watched the show not to just see it as some kooky, goofy side thing, but to actually empathize with the character and his struggles and what he's really going through. Um, whether that was what it was meant to be to start with, I have no idea. Probably not. Um, but it sort of became that. And, um, and you know, in, in a way, I'm, I'm glad. I hope. It seemed as though there were so many people who went into watching that who would start, like, watching scenes. And they'd be like, this is ridiculous. And they're laughing at it. But by the end of the episode, they would be crying along with Thomas and, and wanting um, him to be better. And if that helped anyone walk away from a situation and go to someone that they knew instead of, um, of rejecting them by saying like, Oh, you're crazy or you've lost it or whatever and go to them with love and empathy instead. Um, then it was totally worth it. Do you remember the first time you saw the mannequin, which did bear such a close resemblance to Annika and what your reaction was? Yeah, I think my reaction then is the same as I mean, I, I, I think I notoriously have used this, this same terminology. It's, 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 it's enough not like her to know that it's not her, but it's enough like her to be really, really creepy. It's sort of like looking at, um, yeah, it's sort of like it's, it's, a, it's a, it, there's an obvious distortion, but a major similarity. Um, you know, obviously Annika is much more attractive than <laughs> that mannequin's face ever was, but, but there's also something there about like, when you look at, you see this, how do I put this in the word that there are the spirit of the person and the life force in the person is what makes the person you don't, you don't actually have a relationship with a body, you know, um, and, and you, you see that if you've ever had been to an open casket at a funeral, you know that that person is not the person. Um, and so, so there's also, there's something really weird about talking to something that, that has no, you know, conscious existence and isn't, isn't there. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's a weird and creepy experience. And so it's not, it's definitely not fun, but, but at the same time with that storyline, Thomas, luckily in those situations, he knew that he was losing it. Right. He knew that he wasn't supposed to be hearing something talk to him that's inanimate. 
he knew that this was wrong and weird. And so because of that, all I had to do was just be present in the scene. Because as soon as I look at a weird, creepy mannequin thing that looks nothing like uh, Annika, but does kind of, because you know it's not her, you know everything is off and something is wrong. And so I didn't actually have to play that at all. It just happened naturally by talking literally to a mannequin. Mm -hmm. The harder scenes were to do the scenes where you look at a, a mannequin and have to actually pretend like it's a real person. Right. That was the tough thing. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, on that note, how did you go about approaching your scenes? You know, knowing that it's just you and you are, it, the task is on you to bring it to life because there's no one you're working opposite. The same as any other scene. It honestly, it didn't change a thing. And that's why I, I like doing doing it with an, an actual inanimate object made it so much simpler and easier to do. I just had to be present in the moment. I didn't have to um, manufacture anything. It would have been much hard, like it's much harder to do like, you know, uh, a huge action film where the explosions aren't actually happening around you. You have to like pretend like they're happening. And I've done that before and it's, and it's not easy or fun at all. Like it's, it's so hard. Um, whereas this was just like, it was honestly, some of those were some of the easiest scenes to shoot. Um, and until obviously like the, the actual struggle, the actual pain and suffering that the character was going through, that was the hard part. But the, but the, but participating in the scenes, like being present in those moments was easy. Well, I, I do, I do think that the story played with a surprising amount of poignancy and I thought you were really great in it, but on paper, easy to have a chuckle at. Did you get any good natured guff from friends or family that this was your storyline? Yeah, not really. Um, no, I mean, I, 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 I knew how ridiculous it was and, <laughs> and, and how, um, you know, like I was the first one to make jokes about it. Annika and I spent literally all day on set in between scenes, just making fun of it. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, literally we were just making fun of the mannequin and making fun of the behavior and making fun of everything. It was just, there was no seriousness until they, they called action. Um, and so like, it, 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 you know, I, yeah, of course I had some of my friends that would make a joke, but I was the first one and I participated immediately. It's like kind of like the episode of the office where, where Jim is like telling Michael, he's like, he's like, just like recognize how ridiculous it is that you fell into the koi pond and make fun of it. And that's, that's, and move past it. It's no big deal. Um, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, I, I thought it was as ridiculous as everyone else. So I was on board with making the jokes. Um, well, part of this story involved Thomas getting therapy from his mother um, and then we saw Krista Allen make her B&B debut in the role of Taylor last year. So tell us about working with Krista. I love Krista. Um, you know, Krista's, we have so much fun when we shoot scenes together because we just, I think we both love comedy. And so we, we gravitate towards that. They have to kind of tell us to stop. Um, nothing funny. <laughs> like, it's like, we turn, we turn the scene into a, you know, single can co comedy instead of a soap opera. And they're like, okay, guys, <laughs> like, that's not the show we're shooting. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll tone it down a little bit, but it's just so much fun to, to work with her. And we have, uh, we have a blast together and, you know, she, uh, she, she, I just, I think from day one, I, I sort of felt like I, I understood her to a degree and I felt familiarity with her. And because of that, I, I, I growing into that sense of, uh, a son's sort of protection of her, of his mother, I immediately sort of had that sense of, of wanting to protect Krista, um, for whatever reason, you know, who knows why that is, uh, some, I'm sure some deep psychological trauma or whatever, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 I just understood her and I was like, I feel this sense of wanting to protect her. And, um, so that, I think that just plays, we don't have to do very much on set because we can just be in our sort of natural relationship and, and it, and it makes a hundred percent sense. Like it just works. Yeah. What do you think it means to Thomas to have Taylor back in his life full time? Oh, everything. Uh, you know, it, it didn't logically make it. Now, obviously, there's there's semantical reasons why Taylor wasn't around. Um, otherwise, they would have had uh, Taylor there um, during, especially during when Thomas was, you know, kind of going off the deep end. And uh, so her being having uh, his mother around is is huge. 
And it also, oh man, it, it creates so much um, potential for, for what well, I should say. I mean, just, I wouldn't say necessarily. Yeah. It makes potential for drama, but it's potential for these, these, that there's all this stuff that, that could have happened to their relationship that would be so interesting to watch that now can actually happen and, and sort of manifest in, on screen. And so, um, you know, if, if Thomas does something bad and Taylor were to find out there's this, there's, there's, there's this disappointment that you, that you, that you have, not just with your father, because in the past it's like Thomas did something bad and then there's Ridge. Right. And, and as, as much fun as that is, it's like, there's, everyone has a mother and everyone has a mother. They don't want to disappoint uh, or hurt. And so there's that relationship. And I think that there's this closeness that Thomas has with his mother, um, this like understanding of each other. Like there's a reason why Taylor is a world renowned psychiatrist. She, she like, there's, there's no, it's not, it's not, um, just by happenstance that she went down, you know, um, into a mental health field. And, and so there's something deep in her that, that is, that is, that struggles and understands the struggle from others. And I think that Thomas and her, uh, or she understands Thomas on a deep level for that reason. And so there's so much potential for, for such, you know, interesting dynamics and relationship between the two of these characters to happen. And so I'm so glad that, that we're able to sort of bring that about. Oh yeah. I mean, it completes the picture in a way that almost like you didn't know it was missing until she came. And then you're like, right. So Matthew, I mean, Mara and I have talked about this. Our staff has talked about this. It's been a topic of conversation online. I've gotten more emails than I can name about it. But it is Thomas and Steffi's, we'll call it, intense interest in seeing Ridge and Taylor reunite. So how do you explain why Thomas cares so much and is so invested in whether his parents are a couple or not? Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. There's, there's sort of two directions you can go with where Thomas is left with his parents because Thomas is deeply, deeply wounded by his childhood and the way his father treated his mother in his eyes. And you can go two directions with that. And I think that, I think that the way that it has been, the direction that I've, I've taken it so that it makes sense in the last couple of years is, is to say he never felt um, like he was, he never felt like his father approved of him or cared for him or loved him really. And all he wanted was his father's approval and um, his father leaving is what left this massive hole in Thomas's heart. And so for the rest of his life, it's, it's not a, this isn't a rich problem. It's a Thomas problem, something he needs to figure out. But in the interim, this is what people do. If you have a hole, you don't know where it comes from. You don't know why you don't feel worthy, but you don't. And so you, you do what could be a, a multitude of things to cover up that feeling. You can develop a massive ego to protect yourself against it, or you could, you know, start drinking um, to try and just check out from that feeling, or you can blame people or whatever. And I think that what's happening with, with Thomas is, uh, well, you see all the, the side effects of, you know, what happened to Thomas under multitude of circumstances, but that's a huge one. That, like, why do you think Thomas was so adamant about having a mother for his son and not just being a single parent? It was, he is dead set on this nuclear family unit that he never had. Um, and, that, and, and so the, what I've been playing for the last couple of years is this insecurity with never being approved of or never having the feeling of being approved of by his father, um, which he never actually has to earn. He doesn't realize that, but he lives in this sense of lack. And um, so moving forward to now, 
with this relationship with how Steffi, Steffi has been, you know, parent trap 2.0 in the last <laughs> two years, it feels like, um, <clears throat> is that Thomas, as much as Steffi, always wanted his parents to be together. And now he's, um, you know, he's jumping on board with Steffi's uh, gung-ho attitude about it. Um, and on a personal side, I just like getting to um, to uh, essentially what I do in most of these scenes is make fun of Jackie. <laughs> so I'm either making fun of Jackie or I am acting like Jackie in these scenes. Or acting like the caricature of Jackie that is written on the page. You know, or, or the character, I should say, is Steffi that's written on the page. So I look at Jackie and how she plays it, and I just take it up a notch. I have to say, asked and very well answered. You have made your case. You really have. If you're basing some of your performance on a heightened version of what's written for Jackie, that dovetails into a question I have for you, because... The last time we had you on the podcast, you did a top-notch impression of your co-star and on-screen father, Torsten K. but you said you were going to work on it. You felt you could still hone it all the more. So are you ready to debut the 2.0 version no. of your Torsten K. impression? I don't see the problem with doing a Torsten K impression is if you ever see him now, you, you may not see this very much during scenes, but Torsten is like half Irish and he's like part English, part German, part Irish. And, but, but his accent is like this, this Irish accent that comes out. So when he starts talking, like when I hear Torsten, I hear like this half Irish raspy guy, but what you hear on scene uh, on screen is not that because he removes a lot of that as much as he can, at least. It's rare in a scene where, I, where I'll see that starts, you know, slowly coming out. Um, so when I, if I started doing that impression, I feel like that, that it, it, would, it would fall short for most people because that's not what they hear on screen. And the honest truth is, um, I failed you. I failed you miserably because I, after we got off that call, I not once tried to... <laughs> better my Torsten K impression. Well, we will always have January 2020. And just so you know, you weren't the only one to ever do one, but I feel you are the one that we have given the most credit to. So you might as well leave it. You're in the number one slot. You don't even have to make it better. Well, that's right. Until someone comes back right. and outdoes my impression. We're good. We're good. We're okay. good. So we'll You're move You're moved on, Diamond. Yeah. That's right, Don. Yeah, Don, Don tried one also. He does one too, but we're going to give it to you. Okay. Now we have talked about, you've mentioned, you know, Thomas has his share of what we'll call mental health challenges over the time you've been playing him and his devious streak has been pretty well established. But we saw him genuinely wrestle with his conscience over keeping the secret of how Sheila got Brooke to fall off the wagon. So did you have fun, you know, first of all, getting to play that beat with Kimberlyn Brown, who plays Sheila? Yeah. Um, I, I wish that there were more beats between those two characters because um, the way I see Thomas, and it might not be how the, how the writers see Thomas. I mean, I, you know, um, but the way that I see Thomas, and, and I've talked to Brad about this, is is he he's an anti-hero. I mean, he's not like a bad guy. Like he he has a good heart underneath everything. He's not a complete sociopath or psychopath, but sometimes he acts like one. Um, and, but he's, he's, he, he's a guy without a line. Um, there, there, there are very few lines for Thomas. They, they still exist though, because he does have a heart, but most of the time, most of the people who interact with him, he doesn't really have a line. So you really don't know how he's going to react. And that's why, that's why it's sort of like, um, I think that there was this intensity between say like, uh, when Justin took Thomas hostage, you know? You Justin did not know what he was getting himself into. And that could have gone a multitude of directions. And I think it's fortunate for Justin that Thomas was had been on this path of like self-correction. And I cannot refuse to do anything wrong. He was going the polar opposite direction of all of his tendencies. Because that's kind of like a caged wild animal. Uh you don't know how that thing's gonna react. Like he thought he was taking some, you know, wealthy kid spoon in his mouth, you know, sort of guy. He didn't realize that 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 darkness 
was so deep in Thomas. And I think that's what makes this, this uh, dynamic with Sheila and Thomas so fun is because both of them have this, this immense darkness that like takes a hold of, can take a hold of their being. Recently in story, Thomas has made a push to revisit the custody arrangement for Douglas. So tell us about working with the now two young actors who play the role of your character son, Douglas, Henry Samiri and Django Ferry. They're both great. I love them. Um, You know, I have this history with Henry. um, And so there's there's something like he actually feels like my son. Because I've known him for so long and I've got to see him grow up over the course of years and um we just play around all the time and and so there's there's just like there's just familiarity too and with Django it was you know it's that's a hard thing to do to step in for a few weeks and try and um bring a character to life that's been on screen but it's kind of aged up and is a different like he he looks very different from Henry um and but he i think you know he came in and he was he was so enthusiastic about it and and because of that it was so much fun like it's just fun to get to play around with him too they were both great and um and going into the storyline like this this is something that i have um i very much have like a personal opinion on there's very few things that i'm like no um, and, and like child abuse is one of them. Like I can't stop my ego from having a massive protective reaction, um, to those kind of things. Um, I, I and I'm so fortunate that when Thomas was losing his mind and I actually had to, to do scenes with Henry where, where there was an edge to that, that it was all a joke and a game to him. Uh, and we would joke and have fun literally as soon as it was cut and we were dancing and playing around. And then, you know, for five seconds, I would be like, you need to And then he would be like, ah! and then immediately, as soon as they all cut, we'd start dancing, you know, <laughs> like this, that's the kind of, so, so it made it so that it wasn't a real thing. Um, and that's, that's the beauty I think of our relationship too. And that's, and we have such a history of being able to do that and, a, and such a connection. That's why it feels like my, my, my son away from home, I guess. Um, but uh, it was still fun to, to shoot with Django as well. I mean, it's there. Django is such an excited kid and he's so um, he really loved doing it. Like he really loved being there and getting to fill in and getting to, to play the scenes when they were happening. And, I, and, and there's so much joy in watching kids play, you know, cause they don't do it like we do. Like we, we, we have so much crap that we put on ourselves and we think that, you know, we look stupid if we do certain things or whatever, we have all these eager reactions and kids are just like, you know, that's why I think like when uh, Jesus said to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be like one of these children. It's like, cause you look at kids and you see the the pure joy and, and love and imagination that they have. And it's like, it's so infectious and both Django and Henry have that. So it doesn't matter either way. It's so much fun to play. Now, do you personally think that time that Thomas is psychologically ready to assume a bigger parental role in Douglas's life? Yes. I don't, I don't think that the same, that none of the same drives that you would say would make him a bad father back when, when those things were going on a couple of years ago are the same drives he has now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that people really love seeing Thomas with his son and they love the reuniting of those characters and, and the closeness that they have and, and the need that a, the son has for his, his father to be in the picture and to be, loving to him. And, and I hope that I get a lot more chances to, to do that. Me too. You have such a nice dynamic with, with both boys. Now, did you know all along that it was Thomas who made the call to CPS? And what did you think of that twist? Nope. I didn't know anything. (laughs) I literally, until the script came out, which was, I believe either, I think it was like, well, I should say the day the script came out. So we were on the end of like three weeks of constant shooting and what sort of happens for better or for worse, so that you can maintain sanity if you're in every episode, because if you're shooting 10, eight to 10 episodes a week, but in in this case, we were shooting over 10 episodes a week, which is weird and unusual for us, but still, and I was in everything. And, um, you get to a point after like toward the end of the week 
where you're not looking at next week's episodes. You're only, you're focused on the scene I'm doing right now. And then the scene after that, and the scene after that, and everything else you have to eliminate from your mind because otherwise you're going to lose it. Your, your bandwidth can't hold on to all this material at the same time. So I actually did not see the, 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 the episode didn't come out. I don't think until it was less than a week from the time we shot it. Um, it was just a few days. It was like four days from the time we shot it. I didn't read it until two days before we shot it. That's crazy. And that's when I found out. Another twist B&B viewers are a buzz about is the kiss between Hope and Thomas. Uh, were you surprised that the writers, you know, started to go down that road with Hope and Thomas again? I don't think I'm surprised. Um, Annika and I have thought that would be such a fun storyline to play is, is to have the, the bad boy with the good girl. Um, the fans in, in, in a lot of ways have shown that they have major interest in that. They're, they're obviously, you know, your, your major low fans. And so they, they, they won't be okay with anything that goes beyond Liam and Hope being together. But, um, you know, the same, there's, there's also a very vibrant group of soap people that have wanted this for years and um, think that, that we have so much chemistry and that that dynamic between the good girl and the bad boy is, is so interesting and, and electric and dynamic. And uh, Annika and I both think that too. Well, if you were to give uh, Thomas romantic advice, what would that be? <laughs> Date someone. <laughs> okay, that would be mine too. Good, good. I mean, you've got... objectively like on paper you've got you know one of the richest most sought after guys in los angeles you know huge fashion designer in all the tabloids i'd say i'm not gonna not about myself but how the how the character is written is like this extremely attractive guy that um all the guys want to be like and all the girls want you know that's sort of like how the character was written for years and years and years that's who this guy is no matter his his issues that's how people see him and so it doesn't make any sense for him to not date around (laughs) um and i think you actually had that years ago like before i came on the show i think when pearson was playing it thomas was sleeping around a lot um and it seems like that for a person like him, that kind of behavior is natural in the situation he's in. Question uh, about Thomas as fashion designer that I've always been curious about. We, we see you with a sketch pad with pencil in hand. What are you actually drawing and how would you rate yourself as a doodler? Well, I am proud to say that like last week um, I had a scene, and it was last week or t- two weeks ago, I had a scene with um, Henry and we were, uh, we had a sketch. They said, they told us to get a blank sketch page out and have him doodle and I would draw as well. And I drew, drew a few characters on there and he, he was like, wow, you're a really good drawer. <laughs> and I was like, that made me feel so good. Cause I used to like doodle in school and I would, I would, I would, you know, draw all these characters and stuff. And, um, but I never did anything with it. I just had fun doing it during class and it was, you know, way to keep my mind active. And, um, I hadn't done it in a while, but usually they set down like a sketch that's halfway done. And I go through and I'm actually drawing and I'm actually like filling in and I'm trying to add, you know, creases and trying to add different things to it. Um, not as well as whoever, I don't even know who draws these things, but they're, <laughs> A lot of times they're really, really good. Um, and so I, I just go in there and try not to screw it up too much. Um, <laughs> that's usually what I'm doing. But I am actually drawing. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have reason to believe uh, the Thomas and Liam rivalry might have cause to heat up in the coming months. But off camera, <laughs> you and Scott Clifton have a very different dynamic. You're also camping buddies. So what is your favorite story from your camping adventures with Scott Clifton? That's a good, that's actually a really good question. The question, I think that the, 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 I don't know, there's a lot of, we have a lot of good stories, I think, but we literally drove all around Southern California trying to find a camping spot. Um, so we went to, so we drove, so we got up in the morning, we both went into the office to test for COVID. Then we jumped in the same car and we drove out to Big Bear. And we were going to go camping in the mountains in Big Bear. The problem was 
when we got there, we went to the ranger station. Now there's, there's a bunch of off-road trails and, and camping spots that are sort of way off the beaten path that those are usually what I gravitate towards. And I knew one up there. And so, but I had to go to the ranger station, talk to the rangers to see the weather, how it was going to change in the next 24 hours. Cause it was kind of snowing and it was, they were, they were saying it might snow more. So I was like, well, I don't want to end up in a situation where, you know, we end up stuck somewhere or whatever, because we do have to shoot things, you know, eventually. Uh, so we had, so we had, I think, you know, two nights and then we had to be back. Um, so anyway, so, so we're there and then we get to the ranger station. They tell us that they're, they're just going to be like, I forget what they said. It was something ridiculous. I thought that they said four inches and it was more like four feet. And once we figured it out, it was like, no, 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 overnight, there's going to be a blizzard. You're not going to be able to get out if you go in. And so we were like, oh, then we can't camp here. So then I was like, hmm, I wonder where we could go. And so then my thought went to up the 395 uh, to there's a, there's a place up there sort of, sort of near like big pine, lone pine area. That's a fun campground. That's way off the beaten path as well. We started driving the backside of, of, um, of big bear <laughs> to find out once we got service again, that there was also a winter storm going through there. So then <laughs> we were like, Oh no, we're screwed. And I was like, the only other places I could think are, it's Joshua tree. And I'm like, Joshua tree is desert. So if we go up high, then we don't have the issue. There's not going to be snow, but maybe there's going to be a lot of rain and then you could have flooding. So then I was like, maybe there's a high spot near Joshua tree. I knew of a couple of spots that weren't in the park that were decent for camping. We started, then we had to loop around all the mountains, drive out that direction. Then we end up in the middle of the desert. What was so fun though, is we ended up actually camping at a campground in Joshua tree and no one was there because it was slated to be 20 something degrees at night and snowing. And it actually did snow on us, but it wasn't that much. It wasn't like, you know, we didn't get like inches or anything. It was just like, kind of like coming down a little bit all night, but um, just the, the sheer magnitude of issues that happened getting us to the campground, I think made for a really fun, but also crazy and ridiculous experience but we had a blast we were there by ourselves and you know we had snow and we went for some hikes and stuff and it was great it sounds great that's how i'd want to camp no one else is around (laughs) that's how i do it now i can't i used to do the campground thing and those used to be great but now it's like now especially but even in the few years leading up to covid there was like tons of people starting to to go out and camp and stuff And then COVID happened and it's like everyone didn't have a job and had their cars and all they did was decide to pack everyone up and go to campgrounds. And then I realized, well, I have four wheel drive and I can go up these trails that most people can't. And then I started finding these off the beaten path locations that you need high clearance and four wheel drive to get to, which means that usually you don't end up out there with very many people. I like it. It's the way to go. Matthew, before we let go. Is there anything you would want to say to the B&B fans listening who, whether they love him or love to hate him, are certainly invested in Thomas's journey and are fans of yours? Um, yeah, I mean, genuinely, probably nothing to do with the, the story or the show. Just thank you so much for for sticking with us and, and watching. And, um, you know, if it weren't for you, then I wouldn't have the ability to play this role. I wouldn't be be able to have a job at, at this place. And I have so many friends there and we have so much fun shooting it. So thank you for that. And, um, you know, just, I love you. And if you're, if you're struggling at all, um, know that there are so many other people who understand what it's like. And it's, it's so it's, it can be so easy to find uh, community and to find love and to find support. And um, you know, and if you're living a great life and you're having fun then keep doing that, but like, I just want, I just, I just want everyone to um, I genuinely just want everyone to be as happy as they can and, and live the best life that they can. And um, so nothing to do with the show. Thank you for watching. I love you all. And I appreciate the support um, and you know, but know that you are loved.
What a nice way to end it. We appreciate all of your time today, indulging us in all our questions and just getting to know you a little better even. No, it's been great. We should not let it go like two years next time. Definitely not. (laughs) Have a great day and we hope to talk to you soon. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Matthew Atkinson for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.